You're listening to Nonprofit Confidential, episode number three. Welcome to Nonprofit Confidential. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Sheila Nimishakavi, the president of Third Suite, which is a consulting firm specializing in early stage and small to mid-size nonprofit organizations. Here, it is my job to tease out tips, tricks, and hacks from exceptional nonprofit organizations and share them with you. The goal of this podcast is to share with you actionable tips from nonprofits for nonprofits. Our episode last week featured Rachel Douglas, the executive director of Chrysalis Institute. Our wide-ranging conversation took us through her nonprofit journey, and we discussed mindfulness, spirituality, marketing and rebranding, and so much more. If you haven't had a chance to check it out, please do so. Better yet, hit the subscribe button so you can get an alert every time we release a new episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Third Suite's new course, Nonprofits for Newbies. So here's the thing. Serving in the nonprofit sector can be one of the best decisions of your life. You'll find your passion. Even more importantly, you'll find your purpose. All nonprofits are made up of ambitious, smart people who want to change the world for the better. But to have the most impact in your role, you need the right knowledge and tools. You can get that from years of trial and error, or you can fast track it with nonprofits for newbies. Think of this like a crash course in nonprofit management. This is a live three-hour course split up into three webinars, and there are a couple of really great perks that are being offered. So first off, students have the opportunity to submit questions ahead of time and have them woven into the course. That means that every session is tailored to the unique questions of the students in that cohort. Third Suite also really believes in closing the learning doing gap. You know how it is. You take a webinar but never actually apply the information. To close this gap, all students receive an exclusive invitation to join a private Facebook group where you can chat with Third Suite consultants as well as your peers and make sure you implement all you've learned. Head on over to www.thirdsuite.com and use promo code nonprofitconfidential, that's one word, to receive 10% off. All right, let's dive right into it. I'm really excited to share with you my conversation with Anne McDonald. Anne is the Executive Director of the Brain Injury Association of Virginia, or BIAV, and has been one of my personal mentors. Anne can really geek out when it comes to brain injury research, and her excitement and enthusiasm is truly infectious. In this episode, we talk about how she navigated her career from being an occupational therapist in the hospital setting to now serving as the executive director. We get into making that transition away from direct service work and how to maintain the same level of passion when you move up into a more administrative role. Please enjoy. Thank you, Anne, for joining me on Nonprofit Confidential. I'm so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you, Sheila. Nonprofit Confidential is a fun name. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) We're sharing all of your tips and hacks, so let's get right into it. Can you share a little bit about yourself and your background? Yeah, I'm the Executive Director of the Brain Injury Association of Virginia. I've been in this role for about 12 years now. I've been connected to BIAV since... 
1987. At that time, I was an occupational therapist working at Sheltering Arms, which is a rehab hospital here in Richmond. And that's how I heard about BIAV and became involved with the organization. My previous career, if you will, before I became a nonprofit exec, was occupational therapist at Sheltering Arms. And that's where I really fell in love with brain injury. Very cool. So that's how you started your work in the brain injury field was at Sheltering Arms. Well, yes and no. On one of my internships, I was at the VA hospital and there were patients with brain injuries there. And it was the second day of that internship and they had a guest speaker come in and he was so funny and so engaging and talked about the amazing organ that is the brain in a way that really spoke to me. So I went back to my clinical instructor and said, I want to work with all the folks with brain injuries. And she was like, great, here, have them. (laughs) So I actually started working in brain injury while I was on my internship. And it's lasted 35 years or something like that. Holy cow. Wow. (laughs) It's terrible when you say it out loud. (laughs) No, that's amazing. So one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on the show is your kind of trajectory into the nonprofit field is, I think, similar to a lot of executive directors in that you've gone from a very programmatic, hands-on level of work to now kind of being administrative and oversight as an executive director. So can you talk a little bit about how you made that transition and, you know, maybe where you started working at the Brain Injury Association and how you ended up as the executive director? Yeah, I've been at Sheltering Arms for about 15 years and had been very fortunate while I was there to practice in a number of different settings. So I've really seen brain injury over the whole continuum. But this was, you know, the late 1990s, early 2000s. And the landscape of healthcare delivery was really changing. It was changing in a way that I was struggling with. More services were being denied, lengths of stays were being shorter. So I began to feel like I needed to look for something else. And I had had this long-time goal to go back and get a graduate degree. So I figured that it was time for me just to take a leap of faith. So I left Sheltering Arms really without a job and without much of a plan. So I pieced together some consulting work, and Harry Weinstock, who was a previous executive director who had gotten to know fairly well through camp, wrote a grant and was able to bring me on staff. And then he wrote another one and got me a little more hours, and finally we got enough to bring me on full-time. So in some respects, I was ready for something different. Changing jobs allowed me to go back to graduate school and get my degree, something I don't think I could have done while I was still practicing actively clinically because you're just exhausted at the end of the day. The other thing that I think helped the transition was the role that I moved into when I started here. I was doing a lot of education. I was working with folks in the school systems trying to help them serve kids with brain injuries better. So while I wasn't putting my hands on folks anymore, I really felt like my advocacy role had expanded. And I can talk about brain injury all day long. I want everybody to understand the miracle of brain and how to support people after an injury. So it didn't feel, I think, to be such an abrupt transition moving from you know full day clinic days into sitting at a desk all day. I think the other thing that helped the transition truly was still having camp as a place where I could get some, you know, direct care experience and transfer folks and try to help them figure out things. And so I had that, you know, in my back pocket for a little while, too. And I think through the course of the work, there are any number of things that I still sort of tap into my OT brain for when I'm talking to people about what they need or where they might find resources or that sort of thing. 
So I think it's been a good transition for me. I think that for other folks who would be thinking about making the switch, I will say that I am a much better executive director with the master's degree in my pocket. I got a master's of public administration degree. And what I was able to do was sort of split it to focus in two different areas. One was public policy and one was nonprofit management. And that nonprofit management piece is really what keeps this organization running well, what I know to focus on, how I know to prioritize, being able to make sense out of reading a financial statement, all of those sorts of things. I think I could have learned it on the job, but I think it would have been probably slower and less rich than, you know, going through school to do all of that. So I find that that was the biggest help for me. And I think that if anybody else is looking to get into it, taking advantage of every sort of continuing education opportunity that you have in the nonprofit arena, because things change so fast. Oh my gosh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah. So kind of along that same thread, what do you do now to keep up with the latest trends? I'm a very curious person, (laughs) truly. And I Google all kinds of things, and I'll be at a meeting and somebody will say something. I'll give you an example. Somebody was talking about Snatch the other day, and it's this online technology thing that we might be able to utilize to do support groups. Well, I've never heard about it three days ago, but now I know a little bit more about it. I think if you're not taking advantage of continuing education opportunities in the nonprofit arena, you'll be far less effective as an executive director. Yeah, that's some great advice, I think, for professionals who are thinking of making the switch or have potentially even moved up through their nonprofit, working in the program space and working their way up towards executive director. Uh, Kind of along that thread, what's the piece of advice you would have given to yourself back then? So if you can go back in time and give yourself a piece of advice, what would that be? Cultivate patience and kindness. Patience being first, because I think that, you know, you come into a job frequently And I had the benefit of working here for five years before I came exec. So I came in with a huge long list of things I knew we could improve upon pretty quickly. And I think I stressed myself and I stressed staff because my timeline was maybe ambitious, you know, because I had, I mean, I've been thinking about this stuff for a long time. And I think patience is one of those things you have to tap into every day. I forget And I know this happens to other people, that folks aren't in my head. So sometimes I'll start halfway through a conversation with somebody when I'm trying to give them directions for something. And and I'm like, why aren't you getting this? Well, they (laughs) haven't been in my head for the last four days. So, you know, remembering that the part of my job is making sure I meet people where they are. If I haven't given them any information, I can't expect them to have any information. But I got to remember that I didn't give them any information. So, and kindness, I think when you're stressed... For a lot of people, anxiety comes out as anger, and that's something that I struggle with when I get anxious and I'm starting to feel out of control. I can get snappy. I think that that's the area that I've worked in the most. I think I'm better than I used to be, but it's an ongoing struggle for me. So patience and kindness, the rule of the day. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Great words. So what would be one mistake that you learned from? And it's, you know, mistake in quotes because I'm thinking one of those things that happened and it seemed awful at the time, but it really shifted the way you thought or maybe even the trajectory of your career or BIAB. Well, I mean, there are a couple of things that come to mind. One was the sort of things that led up to my decision to lead Sheltering Arms. You know, I'd sort of grown up at that institution and I'd met some of the 
best people that I ever had the pleasure of working with. And the thought of leaving that place was really, really hard. And I may have stayed on a little longer because I was just so reluctant to go and Mm. scared of the leap of faith that I knew was waiting for me. So all of that seemed terribly unsettling at the time. But it did put me on a trajectory that, you know, I've never really looked back on. So that's a classic example of something that was tough but is better. And I think, you know, since I've gotten to BIAV, there are a couple of episodes that stand out in my mind, and both of them have to do with how I handled an interaction with staff. Both of those were opportunities for me to practice kindness and patience that I missed. And, you know, one of them resulted in the loss of a good employee. She decided it was time to move on. And I'm still sorry about that. And the other one involved my just handling a particular episode very, very badly with my managers at the time. And it led to a lot of tension and some hard conversations. It took longer than I wanted it to. But we're on a much better side of all of that now. I've learned a lot. We've made a lot of improvements at BIAV. We've changed over some staff that brought a skill level that the previous managers, I think, were still trying to grow. Mm -hmm. It was hard on me personally. It was very difficult professionally. But I think I'm probably more patient and less likely to snap than I, you know, (laughs) was previously. Snap at somebody, not snap mentally, Yeah. Yeah. Would you say that the relationship component of leading an organization is possibly the hardest part? Because, you know, you can learn technically how a nonprofit is supposed to run. You can go to school and learn, you know, this is how you read a financial statement. These are the three board positions you have to have. But nothing can really prepare you for the types of relationship issues that could potentially come up. Well, yeah, you know, I think that we're really lucky and that we have a great group of women that work together. But, you know, there's going to be drama in any office place. And most of that occurs sort of on a personal level. There's a breakdown of communication somehow, some way, or somebody's let somebody down. And those things all sort of interplay into all of the relationships. I think that people's preferred styles for learning or interacting or also part of that equation but when you're in the moment you don't necessarily have time to reflect back on that oh this person is an ESTJ this is how I need to do that that's hard and it's hard to maintain I think your emotions and what can be an emotional situation when somebody's really let you down or done something really stupid and so it's hard sometimes to check that part of your brain when you need to have a difficult conversation with somebody. It's better, you know, usually to take a deep breath and think about it several times before you open your mouth. Well, clearly something's working because there are people who have been at BIV for well over a decade. I think one person's been here for 20 years almost. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so something's working here. <laughs> So one thing I've been really impressed with you about is that you've been running an organization. I think it's hard to not micromanage because good or bad, everything ends up coming back to you. (laughs) You know what I mean? So how have you managed to let go a little bit? That's one of those things that I've struggled to temper, and I do think I've gotten better at. Part of that is, you know, just this sort of constant self-talk that I have with myself. Number one I think in many ways the letting go is a self-preservation strategy. 
I can tap into my control freak side really, really easily, and that's not good for anybody. And so I recognize that better when something is coming from the control freak side of my brain or my feeling out of control when I start cleaning things up. You know, you've all seen me go on tears around here where I decide that the storage room has got to be clean. You know, that's a sure sign I'm anxious about something. So I've figured out some strategies to manage that control freak tendency. I think that when you are a control freak and you micromanage, it's just a tremendous sign of disrespect. You know, you've given somebody an opportunity to succeed at something, and the minute you step in and start saying, well, you need to do it this way, or have you thought, you know, you take some of that agency away from somebody, and it's disrespectful. I think I've also gotten better at understanding that there's really only so much that I can do and take responsibility for. I will say in an instance where something's not done up to snuff, thank you, we'll do better next time, we'll make sure we put some processes in place. But for the most part, I like to trust the folks that are doing the things that they're either going to do it or going to be able to fix it really quickly. And, you know, we've never had a huge, tremendous slap on the hand for something that you know, we might not have knocked out of the park the very first time. So the stepping back in is really a difficult call. I think in your previous roles, you've known that this is a group that likes to be told what to do. And so I do frequent check-ins to make sure that nothing is missing or that we're sort of still on the same page. And I sort of feel like if I can do that at a time when we're not actively discussing the issue, then it will feel less like being micromanaged too. So I pick my times that I try to do a check-in to make sure everything is still sort of on track. I see. So you kind of give a task, let your staff kind of run with it, but then check in with them to see how things are going. Mm-hmm. And so it isn't so much as, here's your task, this is how to do it. <laughs> right. I mean, I've had to do that sometimes, and that's even okay with me as long as somebody is checking off the boxes of what they need to do and coming back with they have any questions. I don't expect folks to know exactly every parameter of the job the minute they step into it. And so much is in flux these days. Everybody's job description ends up you know, being massage somehow some way in almost every organization so you know I think that's part of it as well okay I'm gonna kind of switch gears here a little bit and talk about how you maintain relationships with the board (laughs) Uh. because it just takes up so much time for an executive director and it's something you don't really realize is going to be such a time-consuming part of your job until you actually step into the role of executive director So were you expecting that, or how did you handle dealing with the board with your first kind of run-up being the ED? Well, that's sort of a loaded question. (laughs) When I became ED, the board was essentially functioning more like an advisory board. It was largely made up of individuals who had brain injuries and caregivers. And so we would talk about the things that we were doing, and they would provide you know, input on how to do them or new audiences or that sort of stuff. They really, in my opinion, weren't functioning as a governance sort of oversight board. So many of those individuals had been on the board for some time. And when I took over, one of the first things that I did was address the issue of incorporation. We were incorporated in Delaware, even though we were operating in Virginia, because, you know, back in the 80s, that's where everybody got incorporated was Delaware. So one of the first things that I did was decide that we needed to be incorporated in Virginia. I got some great 
legal advice from the pro bono clearinghouse here in Richmond. And so when we did that, we took the opportunity to sort of begin rebuilding the board and started off very small and have gotten it now to a place where we have representation from a number of different constituencies. I knew that getting the board where I thought they need to be was going to take some work. This board hadn't really participated in a lot of formal board education. They had approved the 990 and the financial statements, but I wasn't really sure that they were reading them with a critical eye. Usually it was just sort of a rubber stamp is the way it felt to me. So we intentionally began to work on finding board members that had some nonprofit experience or had ends in other industries. We started looking at things that we might be able to do to help educate the board, and we created a strategic plan because we really didn't have one of those either. I think that my relationship with the chairs of the different committees is strong because I do talk to them a lot. I set them up for success at the board meetings. I talk to them extensively before the board meetings because I want to make sure there's not going to be any surprises either. Or if there is, at least I have an opportunity to have a heads up or know something. All of our board members serve on committees, so when we have our committee calls, I'm talking to all of them outside the regular board meeting. Mm -hmm. And I think, too, trying to tap into those folks that have some expertise. We have a board member, for example, who's a pediatric rehabilitation doc down in Norfolk. And so we're looking for some speakers for our conference or, you know, a great neuropsychologist down there. He's a great resource for us. So we tap into the networks that he knows, and that just helps build the relationship too. But it does, it takes a lot of time. I think one of the things that has surprised me most in the last couple of months is we've switched to an electronic timesheet. So we're not doing, you know, every five minutes what it is that you're doing, but we are capturing our time. And the amount of time that I spend on board support has been surprising to me. Yeah, there's a lot of that yeah, going on. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. We have a board president right now who has worked in nonprofits, who's run nonprofits, and has served on other nonprofit boards. And I think it's been one of the best spans in terms of bringing the board along that we've had in a long time. Every meeting with her is sort of an education because she understands nonprofits so well. And she's conveyed all of that to the board, and they're just better than they've been in quite some time. Yeah, having a board chair who knows nonprofits, it's a world of a difference. <laughs> if I could make that a requirement, I would. <laughs> right. It makes me sometimes wonder if there's a poor little nonprofit leader I know somewhere who needs somebody who knows nonprofits on their board. <laughs> <I know. laughs> Maybe to volunteer, but you know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Do you still feel like you have a connection to the mission of the organization personally? Because you came into brain injury from, you know, very patient-centered standpoint. So now you've been the executive director for 12 years years now. Do you still feel as connected to kind of like the core of BIEV as you did when you first started working here? That's a really good question. I think to some extent, the parts that I was passionate about 12 years ago are different than the ones I'm passionate about now, but still both have me very connected to the mission. You know, I think in the first half of my tenure here at BIAV, I was all about the education because I thought and still believe better providers mean better outcomes for survivors and families. And so if we can develop resources that support all of these folks better, if we can develop a capacity of knowledge so that folks are better diagnosed, better treated, 
then I'm going to be able to impact the lives of you know hundreds of thousands of people rather than the five I just had on my caseload. In this latter half, I think what I'm more passionate about is more on the public policy side. You know, we've been able to work to get sports concussion bills passed. We've been able to pass budget language that requires mental health providers to provide crisis services to folks with brain injuries. We've been able to get some significant improvements in funding so that we can pay for community-based services for folks. We have so many people who are living with aging caregivers that this work has never been more important And I really like the advocacy piece of it. I like being a strong voice. I like standing up for folks that don't have that voice. And so I think that fits me pretty well. You're nodding. You agree. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) It's kind of interesting because you started out like at a very micro level and it gotten a little bit more macro when you did education. And now it's, you know, statewide in terms of the number of people that you're serving. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty interesting to go from like focusing on one patient to now focusing on the state of brain injury in Virginia. (laughs) Yeah. I've met so many fascinating people. You know, there are people that I meet who remind me of a patient that I might have had in inpatient rehab. But more often, the stories that I'm so struck by are those folks who had a mild, and I use that term loosely, mild brain injury and how it affected them and if they were able to completely overcome it or if they're still having some side effects from it. And realizing that brain injury is a hidden factor in so much social failure, if you will. Folks with brain injuries are more likely to be homeless. They're more likely to have a psychiatric disability. They're more likely to commit or be victims of abuse. They're more likely to go to jail. And all of these things can be related back to the structure of this magnificent organ that sits under your hair. And when we start talking about that, that's sort of what gets my juices going. We did a study a couple of years ago, for example, working with Virginia Commonwealth University, TBI Model Systems Program, and the Department of Juvenile Justice, to screen every kid that came into the Department of Juvenile Justice over an 18-month period for the presence of a brain injury, and it was more than 50%. And, you know, so some of these kids who've never been diagnosed might not have ever had to go into juvie had they been diagnosed and treated appropriately at the time of their injury. But it was mild, and so people missed it and didn't understand why all of a sudden they began acting out or using drugs or any number of things that poor impulse control and poor judgment might lead you to. Do you ever feel that this job, working now at a more macro level, is harder than serving one patient? It seems like you're almost up against more barriers. So when you're working with one patient, your barrier is, how do I explain to my patient and get them to learn how to you know, tie their shoelace versus how do I fight the system <laughs> that is putting kids in you know juvenile justice in the juvenile justice system and they're not even getting screened for brain injury Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely when you've got one person you may have competing priorities that individual's goal might be different than a parent's goal for example but when you're working in the public policy arena you can bet you're going to have competing opinions on how you spend your time your money or any other resource that you have We just conducted a legislative survey, and we were asking folks a couple of different questions. But hands down, the population that those who responded think we need to be focusing on concussion across all ages and across, you know, all levels of severity. And that's going to require, you know, a shift, I think, in some of BIAV's thinking. 
for so many years, we focused on those folks that have moderate to severe injuries that are so needy in terms of resources. But what we're learning about concussion is the sheer number of them demands that we respond a little bit more actively, maybe is the right word, to those folks on the milder end of the spectrum of injury. Mm-hmm. But the competing priorities, man, that's a lot of times that's just sort of a no-win situation. That's when you have to call out the diplomat in you and try to reframe or restate something ever so slightly so that somebody will agree with it. But, you know, for every person that thinks we should be focusing on concussions, there are other people who think we should be focusing on mental health issues. And that system is large and not terribly friendly to folks with brain injuries. So whatever decision we make will require capacity, which means we don't have it for something else. On bad days when I'm feeling overwhelmed, I just tell myself it's all job security. (laughs) You know? That's true. Yeah. Yeah. So BIAV isn't a 501c4. So where do you draw the line with your advocacy efforts? Well, we filed the 501H election. So we do a pretty good job of tracking exactly, you know, how much time we spend. And I guess we is a generous term. In terms of the staff here at the office, I'm pretty much the only one that does most of the advocacy stuff. Deborah does some of it, but hers is more educating people to be better advocates. Mine is the actual advocacy and lobbying. Mm -hmm. We have hired an advocacy consultant What Becky does is she gives us perspective on things that she hears at other meetings so we know who's who and who we have to go after. So that's all very helpful. We created a policy some time ago that really spells out very clearly the difference between advocacy and lobbying. And in our perspective, lobbying is really just that one couple of minute period where you're asking them to support something or to kill something. Everything else is education up to that point. And I can educate till the cows come home. (laughs) So I don't think it's all that difficult for us to do that. We lead the advocacy efforts for the state. We're the ones that pull together the talking points and the program data and keep track of how much money that we've been appropriated through the process of the legislation through the process of the budget. I guess this sort of goes back to that earlier comment about control freak. When you're in charge, you really can sort of keep things moving in the direction you want them to go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So as a statewide organization, I mean, of course, BIV is leading the advocacy efforts, but how do you focus on narrowing down to be able to actually affect change? There are a couple of different ways. You know, through attending some of the policy meetings of the Joint Commission on Health Care or mental health services in the 21st century, I can hear themes that I think are going to be coming up in the upcoming session and see if there's a way we can add brain injuries voice to those themes. So part of it's paying attention to what everybody else is doing. Some of it is driven by the cadre of providers that help extensively with our advocacy efforts, the folks that bring people with brain injuries and caregivers, you know, down to Awareness Day or to a budget hearing or to meet with a legislator. So that's another way that we try to make sure that our advocacy wings are large enough, I guess. The other thing, which was new this year, is sort of trying out this idea of a survey to get a sense of you know, where we're missing, where gaps in treatment might be. What we learned on the survey that we just did was, by and large, folks feel like their number one need are community living supports. Now, I wasn't terribly specific in the survey about what that means, so that's an opportunity for a follow-up. What do you mean when you say community living supports? What are those? What would those look like? 
all of those are opportunities for us to engage stakeholders and to be able to do it in an electronic way so that we're not just hearing the folks in Richmond, so that people in Roanoke can weigh in, so that people in Abington can weigh in, so that people in Kilmarnock can weigh in, places where we don't have a provider. All right, so what does the future look like for BIAV? What's your vision before you know you retire? What do you hope is going to happen? Boy, that's a tough question. Susan Connors, several years ago, Susan is the president of the Brain Injury Association of America, and she asked me a question, you know, how will you know when you're done, which is sort of the same thing. And my answer to her at that point was when we can figure out a way to keep people out of an institution. And I think to some extent, that's where I'd like to see the community go. As for where I'd like to see BIAV go, I think that's tougher. I would like to see a little bit more support from the broader community. I'd like folks to understand how ubiquitous this is and how it impacts lots of people and get some support from folks that don't know we exist or don't know that we could help. I'd like to see us expand the budget so that we could offer some sponsorships or scholarships or maybe pay for somebody to get a neuropsychological evaluation if they needed it. I'd really like for BIAV to figure out how to utilize technology better in the service of those individuals that are contacting us. Not everybody wants to sit on the phone for an hour. Somebody just wants to be able to go to your website and find that stuff. We've instituted a chat feature on the website, but are there other things that we could do to be a little bit more creative? Can we do online support groups? How do we provide INR online? Is there a way that we can check in on somebody by text message? So I think that Many of the things that we do, if we can continue to utilize technology in a smart way, that will be very helpful to anywhere we want to go. So for the next couple of years, I think our building capacity in the areas of technology is a short-term sort of vision for BIAV. Long-term, I suppose, is that I would love to be able to feel good about the person that I was turning the organization over to. So anything that I can do to make that happen is really important. We've been tackling at the board level and at the staff level, succession planning. You know, my goal when I took the job was to leave the organization in better shape than I found it. And I'd like for that to be the goal of the next person, but I'd like for them to walk into an organization that has all the pieces there that can help the next executive director achieve their vision for the organization. I bet you didn't think you were going to be doing that when you first started working here. (laughs) (laughs) There are so many things I didn't think I would be doing. I joke all the time, one of the reasons that I picked occupational therapy as a major is because back then it didn't have any math, any physics, or any chemistry requirements. And I find it incredibly ironic that I spend a vast amount of time thinking about money and widgets and data and numbers and have to do all kinds of math now. I, that Yeah, that's probably the biggest surprise. I never saw that coming. No, no. And are you on Facebook yet? I'm on BIAV's Facebook page all the time. <laughs> okay. We'll get you on social media. Keep <laughs> screaming. I have placed the Twitter app on my phone. I've live tweeted. So, you know, I'm getting there. <laughs> all right. Well, what's your favorite part about your job? That I am constantly learning. You know, I said earlier that I was a curious person and I place a really high value on learning and continuing to learn and grow in your job and grow as a person even. And no two days are ever the same. And invariably, I will hear you know, two or three things each week that I knew nothing about that I can then just sort of indulge myself and get on the web and find out what Slack is, you know, things like that. So, yeah, I love the variability of the job. Okay, and last question. 
I think that, you know, when you're working for a nonprofit, especially as the executive director, it can be really hard to turn off. So what do you do for self-care? Well, when I get home, first thing is my cell phone goes on the kitchen counter, and it doesn't go off the kitchen counter, so I don't carry it around the house with me. It doesn't go to bed with me. I'm not checking email or text messages late at night. And setting some boundaries with my smartphone, because once smartphones hit, there was no taking a break from your job. So that's one thing. I love to bake, and I like to cook. And so sometimes I have found that when I'm trying to work out a problem, I'll leave the office a little bit early and go home and start baking something, and then the solution will come to me. So those are another couple of things that I do. And I sing. I sing in a choir. And I'm a firm believer that music can be healing. One of the things that I most appreciate about it is it's always a reminder to me to be mindful. So when I'm in the car and there's a song playing, I need to stay with that song instead of just letting that song play in the background and let my brain spin. You know, so when I go out at lunchtime, I've got the radio on and it's playing loud and I'm singing along. And when I stop singing along, I realize that I have fallen back into thinking about something at work. I do that often enough through the rest of the day to feel pretty confident that the time that I'm in the car, I can sing to my heart's extent and nothing is going to be lost if I don't spend those 15 minutes thinking about work. So that's one of my main tricks and tools for mindfulness is music. That's great. And that's a nice way of incorporating that into time that you have anyway. You have to set aside separate time for it. Mm -hmm. But it's so easy, you know, to have when you're driving down the road, be on your way home to still be thinking about everything that happened at work. And, you know, I want to make a separation so that when I get home, I've left it as much here as I possibly can because it is a 24-hour job. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you so much. Well, you're very welcome. Thank you. This is my very first podcast. Like I told you, it's much easier than, you know, seeing video of yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. So where can everyone find more information about BIAV? Well, we have a website, BIAV.net. We have a Facebook page. We're on Twitter. BIA Virginia is our handle. And come to one of our conferences, come to one of our events, donate, become a member. All of those can be done through the website, and then you'll learn more about BI80 than you ever wanted to know. (laughs) Great. Thank you. You're very welcome, Sheila. Thanks so much. Before you go, do you know of an exceptional individual or organization that should be featured on this show? Please let us know. Send your suggestions to podcast at thirdsuite.com. Okay, guys, thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next week.